Hello everyone, and thanks for downloading EM Clerkship. My name is Maddie Watts, and I am currently in Emergency Medicine PGY2. This is the first episode of my new series called Surviving Your Off-Service. As some of you may know, intern year is spent partially in the ED, but with a lot of time working on other services, like OBGYN, orthopedics, and trauma surgery. This is a series that I've thought about doing pretty much as soon as I started my intern year. I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have some quick refresher to listen to the night before a new rotation or on my way into work? Because we all know how it goes. It's midweek, you just got off a 10-day stretch in the ICU or an overnight in the ED, but the next day is the first of the month, so you're magically now an entirely different type of doctor. At best, you've had one night and a last-minute introductory email to prepare. I remember during my intern year, I was in the trauma bay at 6 p.m. on a Wednesday, and by 5 a.m. on a Thursday, I was in OB triage checking someone's cervix. It's wild. So I knew I wanted to create this series because I would have given anything to have something like this when I was an intern. But I'll admit, when I first sat down to start creating this material, I struggled a lot with how to go about it. There's so much to learn on each of your off-service rotations, and it's really hard to distill down to just a few 10 to 15 minute podcasts. I mean, there's a reason why there's whole residencies in these other specialties. Furthermore, I am not an OBGYN or a trauma surgeon or an orthopod, so who am I to be the one to teach you about how to succeed in these specialties? Ultimately, I decided that my emergency medicine perspective is actually the unique value of this podcast. This is not going to be a comprehensive review of everything you need to know or everything you're going to learn on your off-service rotations. However, it will be a quick refresher for a few of the topics that are not only relevant to succeeding on your rotation, but also things that I think are valuable to take back to your ED practice. The series today is going to kick off with OBGYN and specifically the vaginal delivery. During this episode, I will reference an interview with a very special but well-known guest about his first ED vaginal delivery, as well as some discussion on delivery complications like shoulder dystocia. Ultimately, throughout the course of recording, the episode just got too long, so those two segments will come out in a separate, shorter podcast in the mid-month time around when we usually do the deep dive. I hope you guys enjoy! Before we get into the content for this episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Pearson Ravitz Insurance. As you all know, Pearson Ravitz has been a longtime supporter of this show, and they specialize in a product called Own Occupation Disability Insurance. This is something that virtually every physician should be buying as early as possible in their career, and certainly before the end of residency. Stephanie Pearson was a physician who herself was injured on the job and unfortunately learned the hard way that not all of these policies are created equal. Even though many of them claim to be policies designed for physicians, it's the fine print that matters. That is why you need to get an independent disability insurance agent who isn't captive to any one particular insurance company. They will tell you the pros and cons of all the policies that you qualify so that you can make an informed decision that's right for you. Don't wait until it's too late. Go to www.pearsonravitz.com and set up a phone call to discuss your options. So without further delay, we are going to kick off the series with every ED resident's absolute favorite rotation, OBGYN. 
And no, there was definitely not any sarcasm in that statement. There will be three total episodes in our OBGYN series. Today's is by far the most exciting, the vaginal delivery, and more specifically, the ED vaginal delivery. We even have the privilege of a special, albeit familiar guest, joining us at the end of the podcast to talk about his first ED vaginal delivery as an attending. Before I dive into a review of the vaginal delivery, the other segments for our OBGYN portion will cover the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and OB triage essentials. The hypertensive disorders of pregnancy are quintessential for the EM physician to know and be comfortable managing. Not only is there potential for high morbidity and mortality with these diseases, but they do not always get shuffled off to OB triage. Patients can present with eclampsia postpartum, and they do not always know that they are pregnant, so being hypervigilant for these conditions is crucial. Secondly, I will talk about OB triage essentials. This will do a brief overview of things like rupture of membranes and vaginal bleeding in pregnancy, with an emphasis on need-to-knows for the ED, especially if you end up working in a freestanding emergency department or somewhere without OBGYN readily available. Now back to today's topic, the vaginal delivery. As I was nearing the end of my OB rotation, I asked one of the upper level OBGYN residents about what, if any, advice she had for the ED vaginal delivery. To which she said, all you've gotta know is pit and catcher's mitt. And I said, what? She said, all you've gotta do is catch the baby and control hemorrhage. And let me tell you, my ED brain loved this. Whenever we see sick trauma patients or sick medical patients, the most important thing to do is calm yourself and return to the basics. This is why we have things like ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. And that's why I loved this phrase, pit and catcher's mitt. It's simplified, but it allows you to remember the important things that you need to do. At some point in your career, there's going to be a woman who comes in in full-on labor, and it will have been a variable amount of time since you last delivered a baby. At that point, all you have to remember is catcher's mitt, meaning the steps of a successful vaginal delivery, which we'll go over, and pit, or pitocin, which is one of the medications that we give for postpartum hemorrhage, and this reminds you about placental delivery and assessment for hemorrhage. Today's podcast will cover some of the pearls about the vaginal delivery that I learned while on my OBGYN rotation, as well as put an emphasis on the ED vaginal delivery. There's one caveat. While I have delivered several babies vaginally while on my OB rotation, I still have not had my own first ED vaginal delivery. Fortunately, Mike is going to be joining us later in this episode to talk about his first experience with an ED vaginal delivery at a freestanding hospital during his first year as an attending. So, the vaginal delivery. I am 100% certain that at some point in medical school, you were pimped on the seven cardinal movements of labor. Engagement, descent, flexion, internal rotation, extension, external rotation, and expulsion. And I'll be honest, it was not until making this podcast that I realized half of these movements occur before you even see the baby's head coming out of the vaginal introitus. Because of that, it's not a particularly helpful framework to use 
for what you actually do or see as a clinician during a vaginal delivery. So I decided to make my own. Here are my seven cardinal movements of a successful vaginal delivery. Number one, head comes out. Number two, head turns. Number three, cord assessment. Number four, anterior shoulder delivered. Number five, posterior shoulder delivered. Number six, body delivered. Number seven, baby on mom's chest. I will start by discussing the first few actual cardinal movements of labor because it tells us what the fetus is doing as we are preparing for the delivery. First, there's engagement, meaning that the fetal head, or at least you really hope it's the head, starts pushing downwards against the cervix and into the vaginal canal. The downward pressure of the head is actually one of the primary things that causes the cervix to dilate and efface. Then there's descent. This is usually aided by the mother pushing. You want her pushes to occur in conjunction with her contractions. Between contractions, you can let mom rest so she doesn't tire out. Since we won't have tochometry in the ED, you can feel when contractions are happening by either putting your hand over the maternal abdomen and feeling her muscles tense, and this is often what nurses will do so they can tell you and the mother when a contraction is happening. Or, because you are likely already sterile, you can tell by inserting a finger into the vagina and feeling the vaginal wall beginning to tense. During the descent, you as the provider may provide assistance by lubricating the area with sterile jelly and slowly running your finger around the fetal head to introduce that jelly between the vaginal wall and the body. Finally, during pushes, you can insert two fingers into the introitus on each side of the fetal head and pull down and out to help stretch the introitus and allow baby's head to continue to descend. Once the head is at the vaginal introitus, you actually want to place your hand on top of the baby's head and prepare to apply light counter-traction whenever it starts coming out. This is to the mother's benefit as having a slow and controlled exit of the baby's head will help to prevent vaginal and perineal tears. Not only are you slightly resisting the head's movement out of the introitus, but you are also pushing slightly downward. This is because we've gotten to the extension part of the cardinal movements of labor. However, you actually want to keep baby's head slightly flexed to avoid damage to the anterior structures like the labia and the clitoris. Most babies will come out occiput anterior, meaning that the occiput or back of their head is facing up and their face is looking down. When you push down, be careful not to push down with your fingertips as you don't want your nails to cut into the baby's head. Preferably, you want to use a flat palm. And remember that you are both pressing down and slightly resisting the exit to prevent any rapid expulsion outwards. With your other hand, you can provide perineal support by using a sterile towel and pinching slightly inwards on the perineal tissues. Your OB colleagues will likely show you how to do this on one of your first deliveries, and this is also a crucial step in helping to protect mother and prevent sources of hemorrhage. Once baby's head is out, you're gonna feel a need to do things. 
you're gonna start getting nervous because you really, really do not want to drop this baby. And maybe mom is screaming from the contraction pains, family is already crying and excited because they wanna meet the baby, but it's your job to stay calm. The biggest tip I was given by my OBGYN colleagues was to give the head time to restitute. What does restitute mean? Basically, it means pick a side. Baby will naturally turn to one side or the other. They pick a side because this is the direction that their shoulders are facing. If you try to force them to turn their head the other way, then they will be twisted inside the body and it will hinder your ability to deliver the shoulders. Sometimes it can take a few seconds for baby to pick a side. While this is happening, this is your time to assess for the presence of a nuchal cord. Approximately 28% of deliveries will have a nuchal cord. It is extremely common. Fortunately, it is not as scary as it sounds. Most cords will be loose. You can assess for this by trying to fit your finger underneath the cord. If it is fairly loose, you can go ahead and slip the cord over baby's head. If you're not able to fit it over the head, you can actually deliver through a nuchal cord, though it is very important to hold baby low and close to the introitus. Before lifting up to put baby on mom's chest, lower them slightly to allow for the cord to be untangled. Sometimes it may be easiest to have another person release the cord while you are holding the baby. Okay, so let's say there's no nuchal cord and baby's head slowly turns to face the left side. You will use flat palms, one on top of baby's head and one on bottom, to pull the head downward. You want your fingers in the same direction that baby is facing. So in this case, if baby picks left, you want to stand slightly to the right and have both of your fingers facing the left. Pull slow, consistent traction downwards on the head until you see the anterior shoulder come out of the introitus. You will have to put some effort into it, but this should generally go smoothly. If you are putting consistent traction on the baby's head and they are not budging anywhere, stop. Let your colleagues know, this is a shoulder dystocia and is considered an OB emergency. We will talk later in the episode about shoulder dystocia in the event that it happens with one of your ED deliveries but we will continue onwards for now. Once the anterior shoulder is delivered, you will then start pulling upwards with your palms still on either side of baby's head. In my experience, the next part is the trickiest. As you start to deliver the posterior shoulder, the rest of baby's body will start to come out more rapidly. It is crucial in this moment that you have a strong grip on the baby, as we all know things can get a little slippery. What I was told by my OB colleagues was that as you were pulling upwards, use your bottom hand to start gripping around the baby's neck. I'll admit when they first told me this, I said, there's no way I want to grab the baby around its neck. And they said, well, yes, you don't want to grab the soft tissues of the neck. However, you can grab around the back of baby's head and around the jaw and this will give you a good strong grip as you take your top hand to try to catch the buttocks and or the feet. Per the OB resident that was teaching me, you should technically be able to hold the baby with just one hand around the posterior head and jaw. So in general, as you're moving down with both of your hands, 
Start to use your lower hand to grip around the back of the head slash jaw, and then move your upper hand to catch the buttocks as it comes out. Assuming the cord is loose, then you will be able to lift the baby up onto mom's chest. Don't let go until you are absolutely sure that both mom and one of your nursing staff has a good hold on the baby. All right, so you finally pass off the baby to mom and the nurses. You're probably sweating profusely underneath your gown at this point. However, your job is not done. Delivery is not complete until you've delivered the placenta and done a full assessment for hemorrhage. The first step of delivering the placenta is cutting the cord. Delayed cord clamping has shown benefits for babies, so usually you will wait between 30 and 60 seconds to cut the cord. You will clamp the cord proximally with a Kelly, squeeze the blood towards the baby for about an inch, then place another Kelly on the other side. Either yourself or a family member can then cut between the two clamps. Once you have a free cord, grab your supplies for placental delivery. You will need some kind of bucket to catch the placenta, and you'll need a sterile towel to apply fundal pressure. The biggest, and I mean the biggest, most important thing with delivering the placenta is that you must apply suprapubic pressure prior to ever putting any traction on the cord. Even though I knew this, there were a couple of times that I had grabbed the cord and was ready to pull and had forgotten this crucial step before OB stopped me. The reason this is so important is because if you pull traction on the cord without applying suprapubic pressure, you risk uterine inversion. And trust me, that is not something we want to happen. The pressure is not fundal pressure, but rather suprapubic pressure. You want your hand to go straight down just above the pubic bone. I typically apply this pressure with my left or non-dominant hand and then take my right hand and wrap my fingers around the Kelly clamp to apply slow downward and outward traction on the cord. As the cord starts to lengthen, you can remove your Kelly and clamp up closer to the introitus, being careful not to damage any maternal structures. This helps not to avulse the cord. Once you start to see the bulging placenta at the introitus, you can drop your clamp and start slowly twisting the placenta in a clockwise fashion. This helps to gather the membranes and make sure nothing is torn or retained. Once your placenta is delivered, inspect it briefly to make sure it looks whole. You can then proceed with your hemorrhage exam. Now remember at the beginning of this podcast, I told you the two most important things for an ED vaginal delivery were pit and catrismit. You've successfully caught the baby. Now it is time to ensure that no harm comes to mom from postpartum hemorrhage. Another thing you were certainly pimped on in medical school was the four T's of postpartum hemorrhage. Unlike the cardinal movements of labor, I actually find these extremely helpful and easy to remember. Your four T's are number one, tone, number two, trauma, number three, tissue, number four, thrombosis. I specifically put these in this order because I want this to be your systematic way of assessing for hemorrhage. The first and most important thing is tone. The number one cause of postpartum hemorrhage is uterine atony. After delivery, the uterus is supposed to contract, and in doing so, vasoconstrict the vessels that were previously supplying the placenta. 
However, sometimes this process does not occur as quickly as it should, and there is lots of venous oozing from these previous placental vessels. There are two main ways that you can address tone. The first is fundal massage. Feel around the umbilicus for the top or fundus of the uterus. Apply deep, constant pressure and take your hand slowly in circles over the fundus. You can actually feel the uterus getting firmer underneath your hand, and it's actually a pretty cool feeling. Additionally, you can take a hand and reach it inside the vagina and feel just beneath the cervix for the lower segment of the uterus. This is an area that can more commonly have atony or feel soft. If it still feels soft, continue your massage both from above and from below until it feels firm. The second part of controlling tone is medication. In the labor and delivery setting, most patients will already be on a Pitocin drip and your nurse will turn that up after the delivery. In the ED setting, most delivery kits will have IM Pitocin and you can give 10 units. This is for all patients, regardless of the amount of bleeding noted on exam. Now for our next components of the hemorrhage exam. The next part is trauma. Systematically go through each of the areas that can sustain a laceration during delivery. Assess for bleeding and determine which areas need repair. Start with the furthest back, which is the cervix. Then come forward looking at the vaginal walls. Then look upwards towards the clitoris, urethra, and labia. And finally, look downwards at the perineum. If you notice an area of bleeding, you can start by holding pressure for two minutes. If there's still bleeding after that, or if there's a significant tissue defect, that area will likely need repair. Given that these are mucosal areas, you will want to use absorbable sutures. For the interest of time, we will not go into detail about repairing these lacerations. The remaining two components of your hemorrhage exam are tissue and thrombosis. Tissue refers to retained placental tissue. Fortunately, an easy way to assess for this is using point-of-care ultrasound, which we as EM physicians are very comfortable with. You'll obtain a suprapubic view of the uterus, measure the endometrial stripe, then using color Doppler, look for the presence of vascular tissue remaining inside the endometrial cavity. An endometrial stripe greater than 10 millimeters or the presence of vascular tissue within the endometrium are suggestive of retained products of conception. However, neither are 100% sensitive, so these are just additional clues that you can use in the overall clinical context. You can also get clues about retained placenta by doing an exam of the placenta after it is delivered, looking for any areas of tissue defect. Lastly, if the patient is continuing to bleed despite having assessed for and addressed the first three things, consider thrombosis. Thrombosis refers to coagulopathy, such as DIC or disseminated intravascular coagulation. If a woman is having a substantial amount of hemorrhage, you will need to obtain labs such as coags and fibrinogen and consider giving blood products in order to address the coagulopathy. Fortunately, we as EM physicians are also fairly good at addressing coagulopathy and bleeding, so in the interest of time, I will not go into this further. All right, congratulations, you just delivered your first baby. Let's go back and review briefly. The seven cardinal movements of a successful vaginal delivery are 
Number one, head comes out. Number two, head turns or restitutes. Number three, pause for court assessment. Number four, anterior shoulder delivered. Number five, posterior shoulder delivered. Number six, body delivered. And number seven, baby on mom's chest. Once you've delivered the baby, remember to apply suprapubic pressure before putting traction on the cord to deliver the placenta. After the placenta is delivered, remember your four T's to assess for postpartum hemorrhage. Number one, tone. Number two, trauma. Number three, tissue. Number four, thrombosis. Thank you guys for joining. I hope you enjoyed the first episode in this series. I'm really excited about it, and I can't wait to produce more content like this for you guys. This episode got a little long, so stay tuned for our mid-month episode, which will talk about shoulder dystocia and also have the much-awaited interview with Mike about his first ever vaginal delivery in the ED at a freestanding department without OB on call. But until next time, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.